Good morning, everyone. Let's uh, let's pray. Okay. Oh. Okay. Okay. Hold on. I'll be right there. Hold on, just a moment. Yeah. What's it not? Yes, we're having technical technical difficulties back in the classroom. back on it is okay sorry everyone my wife is trying to play a video as well and I gave her my laptop and I thought I had given her the correct password clearly I did not so if you're wondering how my morning's going we should definitely pray (laughs) Heavenly Father thank you for this beautiful Easter morning thank you for your son thank you for these wonderful folks you have put in our lives thank you that we get together together in your name Father, just bless this time that we have together. Please open your word, open your mind, open your wisdom to us that as we have gathered here that we could come away closer to you. Father, fill us with joy. We have spent so much time in sorrow. We have spent so much time in struggle. Father, please today give us joy. Amen. Amen. So we're going to talk about Easter. We're going to talk about uh, the cross. We're going to talk about the point behind the cross. And we're going to walk through the story in your bulletin. If you look there, we just have kind of a, a walkthrough um, of, the, of, the, of the story of the cross, of the history of the cross. And through there, there's a couple of things. Um, so we're going to start off with, and I, I, I titled this message today, Living Among the Dead. And there's part of the, Christ, uh, the, the story of the cross where you know, the angels are talking and they say, why are you here? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. And that's where the inspiration for this message came from. So that's where we're going to start. You see, that's cross that hangs here. And we'll talk a little bit. We don't normally do this, but this year we have draped the, the cross. Um, last week we draped it in purple for the royalty and majesty of Jesus, the king that went to the cross for us. And today it is dra- draped in white. And that white represents a couple of different things. It represents life. It represents purity. It represents innocence, the innocence of our Lord that went to the cross. It also represents the grave clothes that were left behind, that when we look at that, we can see that uh, through the resurrection, that the grave clothes were no longer there, that the grave has no power, that that is not our destiny. And it is a trophy. It is a trophy of war. It is like hanging the head of a bear or you know, a wolf or a dragon in our hall. If we were to think about this as our, as our hall where our king resides, it would be his greatest trophy, his greatest victory hanging on our wall to remind us that he went to battle for us. Our king, our Lord, went to battle for us, and the trophy that he won on his conquest hangs here. The one thing that we all fear, the one thing that is coming for us all, has been defeated. The dragon, the serpent that chases us down, no, he has no power over us. Our king has won. 
So today we celebrate, we feast, we put on our fine clothes, we sing and we dance from sunrise to sunset to celebrate his triumph. The cross is empty. There is no, no, there's no one on that cross. It is empty. The tomb is empty. This terrible instrument of punishment has been turned into a symbol of eternal hope. We wear it on our neck. We have earrings with that thing on it. It holds no fear for us. The tomb holds nothing for us. I imagine, speaking of those grave clothes, I imagine Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus as they carried the body of, of Jesus down from the cross. They asked the Romans if they could, they could have him, and they carried him down and wrapped him in those clothes, covered his face with that head covering, and placed him in, in Joseph's tomb, that tender act of love. Nicodemus brought spices. He brought 75 pounds worth of spices to put there, and they were all left in the grave. And they are a reminder to us. They are a reminder to us that the grave is not a place for us to be afraid of. He left behind those clothes. He left behind the darkness. He left behind the death and rose in victory. So our title for today is Living Among the Dead. And it's in Luke chapter 24, verse 5. It says, In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. So if we are looking for Jesus, where should we look? Do we look in tombs or on crosses? No. Tombs are for dead bodies. Tombs are places of death and decay. And Jesus left in the tomb a promise, a promise of an empty grave, a promise of empty grave clothes, a promise of an empty tomb, and ultimately a promise of hope. John 14, verses 1 through 4 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Our Lord, our King, has gone ahead of us. He has defeated death and he has gone ahead of us to prepare room for us. And it is not a place in a tomb. So the first thing we need to do, our first application today, is something that's really hard to do. And that is to take Jesus at his word. When he says, I have defeated death, when he says, I go ahead of you to prepare a place for you, believe him, trust him. When he says, if you can believe in your heart and, and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved, believe him. Take him at his word. Don't call him a liar. All those fears and doubts that creep into our lives day after day, all those insecurities that keep us from salvation, every one of those should be refuted with your own words, with your own mouth saying, no, my God is not a liar. My Christ is not a liar. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he has said that he has gone ahead of me and he will make a place for me. That holds no place for me. Second part is to do your part. 
That is, to believe in your heart and to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. God is faithful and true. He will do what he says he will. Jesus said he was going to the cross. He went to the cross. Jesus said he was ascending. He ascended. Jesus said he goes ahead of us and prepares a place for us. Trust him. He has done it. Those empty grave clothes tell us that Jesus is faithful and true. That he went ahead of us through the grave and he leads us onward. So what is the worst the world can do to us? The worst that it can do to us is what it did to him. Right? Harm us. Harm our loved ones. Harm us to death. That's the worst. And then it's over. And then we are with Jesus. That's the absolute worst the world can do. Why be afraid? Yes, it will be painful. Yes, it will be suffering. Yes, we will have discomfort. But that's not the ultimate destiny, and it's not forever. Whatever pain, whatever suffering we have in this world, first of all, it it really is nothing in comparison to what our Lord suffered. He was beaten and afflicted and tortured and flogged and mocked and then murdered. He ran ahead. He ran ahead of all of us. He cleared the path. The pain, the death, the suffering of this life are passages, not dead ends. Our loved ones who have left us, some of them left us this year. They ran through the tomb. They ran past those angels that were there and at the head of the foot. And eventually, we will join them. Our Jesus is not in a tomb. He is also not among the dead. We cannot find Christ in the world. You can search the world around you. You can travel from pole to pole. You can search in every city and every nation. And surely we can marvel at the creator in the creation. But you won't find the living among the dead. I put it in your bulletin, Acts 2.42. These are things that we are devoted to. We are devoted to fellowship. Why are we devoted to fellowship? Because believers are among the living. And if we are looking for Jesus, we must look among the living for the living, not among the dead. Those who are dead in their sins, dead in their transgressions, their hearts are not places where Jesus can be found. You cannot find Christ in the hearts of the unrepentant, of people who persist in their sin. No. Jesus says they are goats, not his sheep, not his flock. They do not know him, do not follow him. They are teres, not wheat. They will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You cannot find Christ there. Can you find Christ among the riches, the material things of the world, in gold or silver or fancy cars or nice houses or fancy clothes, in idols or in sacrifices? No. Those are dead things, things that are passing away. So we must go looking for the living among the living. So we're going to jump into our record of the Passion Week of of Jesus' crucifixion. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, if you'd open to Mark chapter 11, and just stay in Mark. We're just going to mark, watch through. You've got it there in your bulletin. I'm going to jump around to a few other places, but um, you can just stick right there in Mark and track right along if you would like. I want to reiterate, this is is real stuff. This is history. You don't have to look at the Bible if you want to know the story of, of the cross. There's Josephus or Tiberius. There's several Roman historians that recorded these very events about Jesus' crucifixion, that he was a real person. You can find these records. You can travel all over the place. We've talked about the archaeology and the history. This is a historical record recorded by multiple witnesses. So we're going to walk through, and I'm using David Platt's timeline. If you were here last week, 
I use John MacArthur's timeline just as a comparison. So you guys get to be the Bible scholars. You get to decide which one that you like better, if you like the, you know, the Monday timeline or if you like the Sunday timeline. So you guys get to, get to think about that. So here we are. The first thing we're going to start off with is the anointing of Jesus in John chapter 12. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Remember the key thing about that is that right then and there is when Judas, he pipes up saying, why did you waste this? Why did you waste this perfume like this? We could have sold it and given the money to the poor. And really, I think right about then is when he decided that he was going to betray Christ, that things were not going to look the way that he thought they were, that they were not going to be what he thought they were going to be. So then we get to the triumphal entry on a Sunday or Monday, depending on whether you're a David Platt or a John MacArthur Bible scholar. You guys get to decide. So here we go. They come up from Bethany. Remember, they were staying in Bethany. And so they got this two-mile walk, and they go, and they're walking up. And remember, they send uh, the two disciples to go get the, the, um, the donkey and the colt, and, you know, they asked to untie it. And so they're walking up this, this two-mile stretch, and he goes out, and he, they go out, and they get these disciples. The disciples go and get the, the donkey and the colt. Remember, the, the colt will follow the mom. That's why they need both. But Jesus jumps on the little one, on the colt that had never been ridden. The disciples took their cloaks off and put it over the back of, of that colt. And Jesus climbed on. And then they start walking down into town. And remember, as they, as they mount the, the Mount of Olives, as they come down into the city, it's, a, it's quite a climb. If you're coming up where they came from, which was the ruins of Jericho, they have to climb up a couple thousand feet, almost 3,000 feet from the river bottom, the Jordan River bottom, all the way up there. But Bethany is about halfway up. And they go over the Mount of Olives. And they drop just a couple hundred feet down to Jerusalem. So as they're coming down there is when, when Jesus looks at the city and says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to take you into my arms, and yet you would not. But as he comes across, the crowd that had followed them from, from Bethany comes up from behind. The crowd from Jerusalem comes from the front. And they're all shouting. They're throwing their cloaks down on the ground. They're waving palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus goes to the temple and he drives out the money changers for the second time. He overturns the tables and the benches of the guys that are selling doves. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And he says to them, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And that's in Mark eleven fifteen through 18. And we get to Tuesday. And that Tuesday is when they're trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to get him to say something publicly in front of the crowds to get the crowd to turn against him. So they start trying to question the authority of Jesus. They challenge his authority. And he says, they arrived in Jerusalem, and while, while Jesus was walking the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? 
And Jesus challenges them with a question. He says, yeah, by whose authority did John the Baptist teach? It's kind of a trick question. They say, well, you know, if we say that his authority by God, then, you know, that means that he was right about Jesus being the Messiah. And if we say it was, you know, by man, well, the people hold him up as a prophet of God. So that we don't want to say that either. And so then Jesus says, well, then neither will I tell you. But then Jesus says, this temple is going to come down, that if this temple were to be destroyed, that I was going to raise it again in three days. And he says, at that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Then we get to, we get to Tuesday that evening, and that's when he's betrayed. That's when Judas says, no, we're, we're not doing this. So it says, now the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over, and that's Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 11. So that gets us to the Last Supper. So we're in Mark 14, 12. It says, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So the disciples left, only two of them. Jesus says, Hey, you two go. You're going to see this guy carrying a, a jar of water, and when you when you see him, follow him. He's got a room prepared for us. It's this clandestine operation because he knew about the timing. Judas was already had agreed to betray him. They were already looking for a way to betray him. So he sets up this thing. And the disciples have no idea, and only two of them go. They find this guy carrying the jar of water, and he says, Yeah, I've prepared a room for you to go and have dinner. How many of you guys have ever had that happen? Just your friend says, Hey, go and talk to that guy. He has dinner ready for us. But that's the province, the power of God. So they go up to the upper room, and they have dinner. They found things exactly as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. So then we get to this section we call the humility of Christ, the humility of Christ. Now, God has humbled himself. He has humbled himself to take human form. He has humbled himself in healing and teaching and serving all of the people. And then he humbles himself further. It says, it was just before the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, so he got up, from the meal, he took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He washes his disciples' feet, even Judas's feet. Isn't that incredible? And then he serves them at the meal. He serves them. He takes the bread and he blesses and he breaks it. And he gives that first morsel to Judas. He takes the cup and he blesses and he breaks it. And he says, this is the new covenant is in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. That's why we have communion. Is because Jesus did it. 
And then right at the end, we have the prophecy of Christ. He predicts Peter's denial. Jesus says to them, he says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declares, even if all fall away, I will not. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows, you yourself would disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Then he comforts his disciples. He comforts them. He says, All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And Jesus is going to continue to humble himself. Humble himself to the cross. There's a part where at the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulls out his sword and lops off a guy's ear. Jesus says, don't you think that if I asked for it, I would have legions of angels here? If this is what I wanted, that I couldn't defend all of them? No, this is part of the plan, this humility. I must go through this. So then we go to the garden, and Jesus prays. Jesus prays. He intercedes for his disciples. He says, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. That's John 17, 9. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's John 17, 20. And Jesus gives three agonizing prayers. So they went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. Three agonizing prayers and three tired disciples. Disciples fall asleep. And Jesus comes back to them and he says, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. So Judas, who had gotten up from dinner after being served the choice morsel, he goes to the priest. He says, I know where you're. We're going to find him. And the guy that I kiss, that's who you want. That's who you want to arrest. That's going to be Jesus, is that guy, the guy that I go and kiss. And so here it is. Here they are in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's olive press. It's olive press. That's what that means, Gethsemane. There's a mound of olives right there because they're harvesting olives and then there's the olive press. Archaeologically, they found the water basin, the ceremonial wash basin, because it's, all, it's all oil for the temple. That's what they made there, that olive press. was oil for the lamps for the temple. It had to be sacred. So they found the basin where they would wash their hands before pressing the oil. And that's the garden where they are. So this Roman cohort, 100 soldiers, maybe more, come into the garden. And Judas is there. And he walks up to his friend and he kisses him says, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. And going at once to Jesus, Jesus said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. So we get to, to Friday. 
So we have the trials of Jesus. We have Jesus on trial. So the first, they take him to the Jewish authorities. So first he goes before um, Ananias, which is, he's not the, the chief priest, remember, for this year. It's his uh, son-in-law, Caiaphas, who's actually the chief priest. But they take him to Ananias. So the detachment of soldiers and his commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Ananias, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews it would be good if one man died for the people. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. This is that quote where he had decided to kill Jesus. It says, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Caiaphas doesn't know it, but he's prophesying for God right there. God's saying, Yep, it's better that I send my son to the cross, that none of you will perish. You're absolutely right. Thanks for putting those down for me, buddy. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life, and here is that fulfillment. So they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, elders and teachers of the law. They came together. Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. It's Mark 14, 53 through 56. There's a, a, this last week, if you were listening to, to KJOL, they did um, the very first Adventures in Odyssey where they have the Imagination Station. They go to the crucifixion. And there's this great part where they, they did this part where, you know, the guys were saying, yeah, you know, he said that uh, he's going to tear down the temple. And the other guy said, yeah, but he said he was going to raise it up in three days. They, they did a great job of, of portraying that, but good stuff. So before the council, he doesn't speak. So the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin, they reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So then he's tried before the Roman authorities, first before Pilate. It says, are you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. So on hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So we have Pilate, the governor, and then we have Herod, who's uh, one of the kings. Remember, there's four kings over the different areas there. But, so they send him over to Herod, who happens to be in town for Passover. So they send him over to Herod, and Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. They dressed him in an elegant robe, and then they send him back to Pilate. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. And before this, they had been enemies. So he says, what shall I do then? with the one that you call the king of the Jews. Pilate asked them, send him back to Pilate. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. It's an amazing sequence of events when you read it through the other gospels. Because First, Pilate's like, well, if I, I flog him, then maybe they'll be satisfied and I can release him. I don't find any reason to do this. And come back and the crowd is still fervent. No, no, no. So he goes and he finds a murderer. 
That's what Beretta, when they say criminal, that he's a murderer. So they find this, he finds this horrible murderer that he's got locked down in the dungeon. He brings him out. And he says, well, who do you want? Jesus, this really nice guy, innocent guy? Or do you want Barabbas? This guy's already been flogged. He's already been taken care of. Here's this murderer. Which one do you want? It's tradition for me on Passover to release someone to you. Look, look what I've done. It's to his shock and to his amazement that they start crying out for Barabbas to be released. So he has the jar of water brought out and he ceremonially washes his hands. And he says, I find no charge for this man, but I'll do what you want. And he sends him off to be crucified. Now these Roman soldiers are good at this. They're not bad at it. This is their job. So the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. So, in the third hour is when they crucified him. They made a sign, this written notice of the charge against him that read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And instead, Jesus prays for them. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And as he's hanging there on the cross, they divide up his clothes and they cast lots. They throw dice to see who gets what as he is hanging there dying. So we go to Luke chapter 23. We've got these two criminals on his right and on his left. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. And they said, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other criminal rebuked him and said, don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to him, Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Remember, Peter had, had fled. He had been there in the courtyard, and then they had accused him you know, of being a disciple. And Peter had denied. He said, no, I don't know him. I don't know him. And then he heard the rooster crow. Well, he didn't stay away for long, so some of the disciples and all of them have gathered at the, the foot of the cross, including John and his mom, Mary. They're there at the foot of the cross. And the height, by the way, when, I, when we made this, was trying to be as accurate as we could, that he probably was just a little bit above. That's why they could record some of the words that he said. You see some pictures where it's, it's fairly tall, fairly high up. I don't think that's the case. It's funny when you talk about the archaeology of the cross. There's not a lot of them left. There's some drawings. There's some, some pieces. But the only hard evidence that they have found about crucifixion is they found one foot bone with an iron nail driven through it. That's all they found. Isn't that amazing to think about? There's pictures of rows of crosses in and out of cities when the Romans would, would march in and they would crucify traitors. There's pictures of it, but no archaeological evidence. The iron was precious. They would have kept the nails, but the wood rotted away. But there he is on the cross, and there's his mom, and there's John, and there's 
Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and John, he said to his mom, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, John took Mary into his home. I can't imagine what it would be like hanging on the cross. You die by suffocation. That's, you're pushed forward onto your lungs. You can't breathe. So you push against your hands to try and get a breath, or you try and lift up with your legs, which, of course causes a lot more pain and eventually you can't do it you can't lift yourself up anymore so you fall forward and you suffocate that's how you die and in that moment Jesus says take care of my mom isn't that amazing so last three hours at the sixth hour darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour at the ninth hour Jesus cried out in a loud voice Eloi Eloi lama sabachthan which means my God my God why have you forsaken me When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he is calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, one of them said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. That's Mark chapter 15, 33 through 37. John 19, 28 records that he said, I am thirsty before they gave him. John 19.30 says, When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. Luke 23 records, He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. And the curtain was torn at the temple. The ground shook. People came out of their graves. And the curtain that, that covered the Holy of Holies at the temple was split open, <laughs> emptied. No more. The old covenant was broken and the new covenant was sealed in the blood of Christ at that moment. Remember the soldiers come by to end it. They don't want it to go on for too long. So their practice, remember they were supposed to suffocate to death, but if it was going on for too long, they would come along and break the legs of the, of the people that were hanging there. When they got there, Jesus was already gone. To make sure they took a spear and they poked it into his side, and the blood and the water came out. If you were keeping track, it's probably about the same time that they were cleaning off the grounds. Remember, they'd been sacrificing lambs all day long for the Passover. And at the evening time, before sundown, they had to get the temple clean because they couldn't work after sunset. So they had, remember that there's this big um, water aqueduct that Herod had installed that brought water down to the temple, filled the big basins there. They used to have to haul water to do it but now they actually had an aqueduct that carried it to it so they could open that up. And they would flood the whole courtyard of where the, the altar was. And then it would go out these scuppers out the side down into the valley, outside of the Kidron Valley. And that's exactly what would be happening at the exact same time that that soldier is piercing him in the side and the blood and the water comes out. The blood and the water come pouring out of the temple that is now emptied. And so Jairus of Arimathea goes to Pilate. He's a wealthy man. He goes to Pilate and he says, can I have his body? I'll bury him. Or that it's getting to be sundown and that for a, for a Jew to touch a, a dead body makes them dirty and it's Passover. But he's not, he's not willing to, to let him leave there. And so he and Nicodemus, they go and they grab the body of Jesus and they wrap it in clothes and they put it in spur. It says, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices 
in strips of linen. And this was in accordance with, Jesus, with Jewish burial customs. And at the place where Jesus was, was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, the Jewish authorities said, no, we know this story. We know the story of the Messiah. We know he's got to come back. Isn't that a tragic thing for them to say? To know the prophecies? They know it. They know the scriptures inside and out. And yet they still denied him. They saw the miracles. They talked to people. They had every single witness. And yet they were so worried about holding on to their position, holding on to their power, holding on to their material wealth, that in the face of the miracles, in the face of the teaching, in the face of everything, they still crucified him. And so now they have to cover up for their crime. Now they have to cover up for it. So here they go. The chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and to tell the people that he was raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate answered, take a guard. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. I can't imagine what it was like for the, the disciples as they sat there on Saturday. Their whole world shattered. I don't know if they probably went back to Bethany, probably gathered together. But how terrified they must have been. Terrified that the Roman authorities were coming for them. Terrified and brokenhearted, having watched their friend innocent friend be killed but here they are these beautiful women these women that in the face of all that in the face of the fear in the face of the persecution in the face of the the sheer sorrow the weight of it this is what they do this is what ladies do they get up early in the morning on the third day the sabbath is over they can go do it they said no we got work to do our Lord is in the tomb. We're not going to let him just be there. He will be buried properly. And so they get up early in the morning and go to the tomb. And when they get there, they see that the stone has been removed. Been removed. So they run back and they tell the disciples. They tell Peter and John. And they said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but... John outran Peter, just in case for all time we need to know that. He bent over and looked in the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, notice he has to tell you again, he reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and he believed, although they still did not understand that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary, Mary Magdalene, she stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? And she says, they have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. My good friend, Dr. Reverend Larry Cunder, 
said he thought that the reason that she didn't recognize him right away was probably because they had ripped out his beard. So there he is, scarred, and she probably just didn't recognize him right away because of that, that to dishonor him, they had probably ripped out his beard. But when he says her name, he says, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She rushes to him, and Jesus says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. There he is. From arrest, to prison, to beating, to the cross, to the tomb, and then to victory. So why? Why did this have to happen? It's called substitutionary atonement. Ooh, $5 words for a Sunday morning. That word that we can break down, it's at one meant. It says we are separated. We are currently separated from God. We want to be with God. So what is it? What is it is that is separating us from eternal life with God? It's sin. It's rebellion. It's disobedience. And sin is man taking God's place. Grace is God taking man's place. So how can we be restored? How can we be at one with God? How can we have a right relationship with God? David Platt said, here are some truths about the cross. The cross is a triumph over the forces of evil, sin, and death. The cross communicates the extent of God's love for us. The cross shows us how to love like Christ. The cross illustrates the significance of God's justice. The cross honors the character of God. And the cross demonstrates our need for a substitute. The central truth expressing the meaning of atonement, of atonement, is God's wrath being satisfied through a substitute. That's what happened at the cross. Someone took our place, our rightful place. Someone else, Jesus, took my place on the cross. It's kind of like a substitute teacher, but not really. I always liked substitute teachers. They would wheel the little card in. You knew you had a sub and you had a movie. This is better than that, just FYI. Jesus went to the cross for you and me. And what we don't want to have is a light or a superficial understanding of God's wrath because it's serious stuff. And so when Jesus is there praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's, he's sweating blood because he is drinking down that full cup of wrath, of God's wrath for us rebellious sinners. He takes the whole punishment that we deserve. It's hard to, to imagine how God is because God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time. We don't really understand it. We understand, you know, Jesus is with me right now in the moment. He's right here with me now. But he's still with you then. He is still in that place, that place where you said those mean words, that, that place where you told those lies, that place where you did that wrong thing, that place where you fell. He's still there all the time. He lives there all the time. He is with you all the time in that place where you did those things. 
bad enough, right, when we hurt each other, but at least we get to move on. We get to move out of that place. Maybe we reconcile, maybe we don't. God is still there. Kind of makes you understand his wrath, doesn't it? Our rebellion is constantly in his face. Everything that we have said and done, every disobedient act we have done, every evil thought, it is in his face all the time. It rings in his ears eternally, and it will never go away. Kind of understand God's wrath, why there is punishment for sin, why he can't turn away from it. Because God is loving and kind, and God is wonderful and merciful and and forgiving, but he is also just. And none of us wants to see rapists and murderers get off scot-free. None of us listens to the podcasts about serial killers hoping that they get away. We want them to get caught, and we want them to face justice. We want victims to get reconciliation. We know that is good and right and true, and God is good and right and true. And every sin is ever before him, and no one escapes his justice. Makes it kind of impossible, doesn't it? That Suddenly that gap is pretty apparent, isn't it, when we look at it that way? The gap that we can't bridge. There is no way that we could get there. There's no way that we could be righteous enough or good enough or any way that we could make it up to God for those things. From Adam and Eve sinning all the way to where we are now to the other day when I was yelling at my kids because they didn't pick up after themselves. Right? So we have this gap. And Jesus says, no, I love you too much. God says, I love you and I want to be with you. So I got it. You can't do it. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to send my son. He's going to be just like you. He's going to be fully man. But he's also going to be me. He's going to be fully God. And he's going to pay the price. He is going to drink down the full cup of my wrath. And in there, you will be reconciled. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Reconciliation, that's what it's about. And through him, we are reconciled. So uh, I heard something quite profound this week. We're just about done. I was uh, thinking about, you know, a writer. He, uh, he plays soccer. And it was uh, one of the videos we were watching for him to, to get coached up for one of his tournaments. And uh, the guy was talking about receiving the ball. It's called a, a first touch. For those of you that don't play soccer, I've never played soccer. Well, I should say, when I was a kid, I played soccer, and I was the one who sat out in the goal and, like, picked flowers. That was my extent of my, of my, of my soccer. But so this guy is talking about quality first touches. I guess they don't call it, like, handling the ball or passing the ball. They call it a touch. So quality first touches. And it starts with your attitude. It starts with an attitude. And it's an attitude 
that we shouldn't have a, a casual attitude about it. When we talk about our obedience and we talk about the first and the second commandment, love God and love your neighbor, we can't have a casual attitude. It needs to be an intentional attitude. Because that first touch is your first opportunity to control and to move the ball. And a quality first touch starts in your mind. You have to have a positive attitude. Even if you've missed before, all those previous misses, they have to go away. All the failures and all the doubts, they have to be set aside. They cannot dictate the next touch. And a poor attitude will guarantee failure. You have to believe you are going to have success. And the guy said, you have to have a plan. And it depends on the situation, right? He's talking about receiving the ball, that first touch. He says, are you on offense? Can you advance the ball? Are there defenders near you? Where are, where are you on the field? Where are your teammates? How is the ball coming in? Is it going to be a chest? Is it a slow pass that you need to charge? But that first touch sets you up for success, and it starts with attitude. Worship is our first touch here at church. Canyon West. Worship is our first touch. So we come in, we hug, we handshake, we get a few moments to catch up before we stand up and we begin to sing. This is an amazing truth that I learned this week. I, I love this. When we sing, see, I've been talking at you guys for almost an hour now, right? This has been very passive. You've been listening to me. When you sing, that is the gospel coming out of your mouths, from your mouths to your ears. That is when you are taking it from your heart and putting it out for yourself. That's the only time that happens. You guys don't, anybody else preaching on, on Sundays? I'm asking for volunteers is what I'm, but you see what I'm saying? That when you guys stand up and when you sing, when you express your heart there, that is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ coming out of your own mouths to your own ears. So how momentous is that first touch? If we were to compare it to our Jewish ancestors, our Jewish ancestors had 14 ways to avoid saying the name of God because his name was so holy as not to be uttered by unclean lips. Our ancestors removed their shoes, fell down on their faces, tore their clothes, weeped, moaned, and wailed at the thought of their sin. Do you think God has changed? Do you think he is in heaven saying, it's okay, I didn't really mean it? I don't think so. Now, you don't need to set aside a day and not work, right? That our, that's our attitude now. Where you can watch porn and lust all you want to. God never took that whole marriage thing that serious anyway. That's all right. Worship when and how you feel like it or when you get around to it. What about God's name? Even on TV, people curse using God's name. If we were to flip over to Genesis 1 and Job 38, when God speaks, there is darkness and there is light. There is earth. There is water. His word brings mountains. God speaks and life springs forth on the earth. Plants and their kinds, sea creatures and their kinds, land animals and their kinds, birds and their kinds, each of them springing into life at the word of God. 
Even Jesus in the boat, the wind and the waves obeyed his word. Think about the demon-possessed guys. He commands them. Remember, we were just talking about the Last Supper. There's a moment when they're sitting at the Last Supper. He gives Judas that, that choice morsel, that first morsel. And it says, Satan enters into him. And then Jesus turns to him, Satan, and says, do what you're going to do quickly. And he gets up immediately and leaves. Jesus commands demons. The demons that those demon-possessed guys at the grave, they say, it's not time yet. What have you to do with us? Not time yet, please, no. They don't want to go to hell either. They say, please, let us go into these pigs, please. Not yet. And they still call him Lord. It's kind of crazy then to think about us humans that curse using God's name. Not even the demons do that. Those demons were obedient to God. And Jesus distills it all down to two commands not suggestions, not things to put on your to-do list, not round to it. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe commands that we love God and that we love our neighbor. Commands it. So that's our command from this Easter forward, is to look out, to understand that Jesus went to the cross for us. First of all, we have nothing to fear. That was the very first thing we talked about, is that we have nothing to fear. We have everything to gain and nothing to fear. The second part about it is that when we're looking for Christ, right, when we're searching, when we're doubtful, when we're uncertain, where do we look? We look among the living, not among the dead. Right? It tells us where to look, where to go. And the last part is to understand that Jesus paid it all for us and how important that is and how beautiful and how wonderful it is and why it is that we should be filled with joy and why it is we should be filled with celebration today. Why it is we should cry out today because our sin is ever before our God. Everything is ever before our God and he says, no, I got it. My son will take care of it. My son will drink down that cup of wrath for you so that we can be together. And out of that, for that, I just ask you to do two things. Love me and love everybody else. Isn't that an amazing thing to say? In response, in payment, not really in payment, that's a poor word to use, but in response, please, love me, love them. That's what I'm asking you to do. We got one last song. Let's, um, I got this quote from Horatius uh, Bonar that I want to close with, and then we'll pray. It says, "'Twas I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng I see, mocking the sufferer's groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Father God, we are seeking your face. We are looking for you among the spirit of the living. We are thankful that you sent your son for us. Father, please help us to, to realize how beautiful and how special and how wonderful the things that you have done for us. Please help us to 
break open our hearts, to break open our minds, to grab hold of what you have given us, that beautiful gift of grace. Please fill us with joy at your triumph over the cross. Please help us to keep your holiness and your righteousness in our minds and in our hearts so that we understand how how far you have brought us and how far you lead us on. Father, we are thankful for this time that we have together. We are thankful for this place. We are thankful that we get the opportunity to get together in your name. Please bless these days that we have and please carry us onward. Please lead us to your mansions that we can be closer to you. Father, we have some folks that are they're suffering. They've lost loved ones. They've got cancer. They've got surgeries. They've got all kinds of things coming up. We are asking for healing. We're asking for comfort. We're asking for your presence. And we're asking for your blessing. We ask all of that in the loving name of your son, Jesus Christ, who rose again.
Christmas time.